From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. What follows is the 2019 Shannon Luminary Lecture by Dr. Miguel Nicolelis, the Duke School of Medicine Distinguished Professor of Neuroscience, Duke University Professor of Neurobiology, and founder of the university's Center for Neuroengineering. The talk is entitled The Future of Human Augmentation. And if you haven't already, please check out our prior episode for some background and more information about this amazing lecture. Here's Miguel. First of all, thank you very much, Marcos, for this invitation. It's a great honor, a great pleasure to be back here. You know, this is a special month for me. I'm celebrating 30 years since I moved from Brazil to the United States. Uh, I got here in 89 to work with one of the greatest neuroscientists I ever met in my life, John Chapin, who was my postdoctoral mentor at that time. And once John brought me here in the 90s to visit Bell Labs. Imagine you're a postdoc coming from Brazil. Suddenly you are in the middle of Bell Labs and remember and looking at the walls and seeing that Penzias was here working, measuring microwave radiation that I heard when I was in high school growing up in Brazil. So it was a great emotion. I just saw his picture again. And it was a great emotion to be here in the middle of one of the most traditional uh, research scientific labs in the world. So thank you. It's, a, it's really a great pleasure and a great honor to be here today. So I'm, I'm going to do a very different talk from the usual academic talks. I want to enjoy this. You know, it's not every day you come here. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you this story of how John and I came from a crazy idea at that time, because people told us that we were completely crazy, NIH told us, NSF told us, everybody in the field told us that we were crazy, because what we wanted to do was totally insane for the perspective of the neuroscience of the late 80s. We wanted to record electrical pulses of more than one neuron at a time. The field was dominated by characterizing the features, the properties of the electrical firing of individual cells, one at a time. And I was in medical school in Brazil, and I told my uh, PhD advisor, my MD PhD advisor, said, Dr. Caesar, I want to record more. I want to see many firing simultaneously. And after all, we have 86 billion up here. It's going to take a long time to understand this thing if we're going to go one by one. And he said, I know a place you can go to do that. If you want to record 40, my goal was to record 50 when I finished uh, my PhD in 88. And he said, I know exactly where you should go to do this. I said, where? I look all over Brazil. I call everybody. I went to everybody. He said, no, no, no. The place is called airport. You go to the airport, and you find a crazy American that will buy your idea, and you do that. And I actually did find the crazy American. That was John Chapin, because he was the only guy on the planet at that time that wanted to do the same thing. And this is what the same thing looks like. I don't know if the light can go a little off on the stage here, but John's and my dream in 88 was this one, to record hundreds of brain cells simultaneously over time, to look at the electrical spikes that they're producing individually and look what they are encoding here. And the question was very simple. Can I look at these 10 seconds of a monkey's brain activity and tell what the monkey is about to do 200 milliseconds in the future? People thought it was totally insane. I mean, the motor cortex of the monkey has 100 million neurons. We were recording at this day, the day of this experiment that I'm showing here, 100. And the question is, can I tell where the monkey is moving the arm in 200 milliseconds to grab a reward 
if it does it correctly? And the answer was, as you're going to show, I'll show you in a moment, yes. You won't see it. You will think that this is a stochastic process, but no. I have been looking at this image for 20 years now. <laughs> I know exactly where this monkey is going. <laughs> and, uh, but the interesting thing is, this is the point. A hundred cells were able to produce a multi-degree of freedom movement to move into a space in the future and grab what was needed to receive the reward. So what I'm going to show you is how we went, and, and then, I, of course, my own life story since coming here, how we went for developing methods to, that we call chronic multi-electro, multi-side recordings to obtain these recordings in real time of what today we can do 2,000 neurons simultaneously to actually do experiments for a decade of my life, I did experiments trying to extract the principles of neurodynamics and plasticity occurring not at the level of the single cell, but at the level of populations, neurons that form a circuit that underline a particular control, a particular behavior, like motor control, okay? So from that, when we got to that point after collecting a huge amount of data, uh, we came to the point where John and I reason that we needed a new approach to try to understand these principles in real life situations. And the problem when you're doing experiments with monkeys or humans is you cannot control the actuators very well. You know, monkeys have a tendency to do very weird movements that is difficult to measure like we do. So we said, well, what about if we to test these ideas about populations, instead of doing the usual thing, recording the brain why a subject does something, what about if we record these signals and reroute these electrical streams directly to a robotic device that we can build the way we want, we can control the way we want, and then we provide feedback from this robot back to the brain and see what this closed loop control does. And then we tweak the computational models that we're using to extract the signals from the brain to see how well we can perform motor control with populations of neurons. That's the second phase of my life where I actually implemented this first in animals and later in humans. And suddenly, we had an opportunity that I'm going to show you how we did a demonstration <clears throat> in the middle of the opening ceremony of the 2014 World Cup to show to the world that this was not anymore science fiction. This was here. This could happen now. How we implemented, translated this research into potential neuroprosthetic devices that can help patients who suffer from, let's say, a devastating spinal cord injury to regain some sort of motor control by a bypass, a brain-machine interface bypass. And lately, how this is exploding now, because we just realized that the same concept can be applied to a variety of neurological disorders that we don't have therapy for or we don't have any kind of cure for, uh, not using all the beautiful genetic molecular stuff that my friends uh, do uh, apply, we realize that perhaps we have different ways to interact with the brain to try to solve problems when these circuits go uh, over uh, the board and become hyper-synchronized, which is the main problem that affects most of us when we develop a particular neurological psychiatric disorder. So it started with the, my favorite subject, the monkey's brain. Just to familiarize you, we are not very far from them. Just a few million years uh, of evolution. You see all the many structures that we have in our brain are present in the cortex of a rhesus monkey brain. And the only reason I'm, there is no, there is no test at the end of the lecture, I'm just, for the names of this, I'm just showing you because these are the structures that we chronically implant with our sensors 
to sample these electrical brainstorms uh, from a whole circuit, a circuit that involves frontal structures, parietal structures that are working together normally to generate a motor behavior in the future. Okay? So what do we implant? Oops. We implant these devices. We are now in the third generation of what we call recording cubes. These are uh, devices made of uh, very flexible uh, Teflon-coated metal filaments that can be left in the brain for years. Our record now is eight years in monkeys. So you implant once and you can, in multiple regions of the brain, and you can actually leave these devices in there. You don't touch them anymore. Now with the advent of uh, new technologies for wireless, I'm going to show you in a moment, wireless transmission, you just put a microchip on top of them, you close it with a helmet for protecting the electronics because you don't want a, a monkey putting its sticky fingers in $20,000 electronics there. And the monkey can live with this implement for the rest of his life. So we can record continuously in the existence of this animal while it's behaving normally or is learning new tricks. So this is the raw signal, which is so beautiful. I always like to show it again and again. The individual electrical waveforms, we call action potentials, produced by individual neurons, in this case in the cortex, uh, the great advantage of this technology is that these filaments can record these fingerprints from multiple cells simultaneously, each one of them, up to four. So if you implant, let's say, 600, that's how you build up your sample, because you can get a larger number per microwire. And these are just one of the first experiments in which we cross the barrier of 250 neurons recorded simultaneously from one of these cubes. That's when we discovered that we could implant multiple uh, cubes in a monkey's brain and start building our samples. So it got to a point uh, uh, a couple years ago where we beat the record of sim simultaneously recording neurons in a fully behaving monkey, uh, 1874. And this is basically a bird's eye view of one of these implants. If you've never been in a neurosurgical suite, this is what you're going to see in 20 years from now. You know, the implants that will happen in humans. Uh, it's just that these are in monkeys. These are the first phase of what is going to become the future of neurosurgery. But these are implants in multiple areas. You see eight different cortical areas. And on top of this, you can put our microchips that do everything I don't need to describe to you, the, all the amplifying, filtering, and wireless transmission. So at the end of this, these are these uh, samples, about a few seconds of uh, these uh, recordings of 2,000 neurons. But one of the greatest features that we describe that is related to the materials that we use to create these microfilaments is that they last forever. And they allow us to record forever. So this is how it looks like when you close the protecting helmet with the wireless transmitter here. Um, but perhaps this is the most important feature of this technique. These are ears. And each color line represents a monkey and how long we are able to record continuously from the brain of each one of these monkeys. So we had a couple monkeys that we recorded five days a week for about seven and a half years. So we had, as you can imagine, a library of brain activity of these animals for everything because they could go to their own living quarters and we could still record it with this new uh, wireless system. Lately, we could record while they are there sleeping or doing whatever they do there. So the importance of this is that we are very close to the decade-long 
implant time zone that uh, medical devices are required to be, you know, for the heart, for instance, if you have a pacemaker or other things, uh, we are very close to be able to keep something in the brain for a decade uh, and recording this large scale uh, uh, brain activity continuously. So when we got the ability to record these signals, uh, of course, two major problems came. First, what do you do with them? How you analyze this huge time series of thousands of variables? Uh, you know, of course, there was a lot of statistics that have been described for other things that John and I tried to adapt it. But the main question is there were all sorts of models, theories that have been proposed by how, uh, theories about how the motor cortex codes information to generate emotion in the future. And these theories, uh, you know, they were very interesting theories, but they have never been tested in real time like in a new preparation like this one. And the preparation that we proposed, and we gave a name, and it's very nice that I'm back in New Jersey because I used to live in southern New Jersey for four years. And this name, people come to me because it became very popular, brain-machine interface. People come to me and say, well, how is this name created? This is a great invention. How did you come up with this? And well, John and I were in one of the most famous cheesesteak joints in, outside Philadelphia, <laughs> Genos. And we are there eating this cheesesteak, and we need to send this grant, and we had no idea how we were going to name the image that you just seen. And I don't remember who one of us or both of us just said, well, let's call it Brain Machine Interface. And a huge truck driver next to us, completely full of cheese in his face, looked at us and said, that was a very good name. <laughs> so we got immediate peer review approval, you know? And the grant was rejected, I have to say. But in any event, 20 years later, I went to NIH to get an award for Brain Machine Interface that they actually rejected when I sent the first grant there. But the idea was very simple. So you have an idea how the motor cortex works. Let's put it into computational terms. Let's record as many neurons as you can simultaneously in a monkey doing a particular task. And let's see if we can, in the reaction time interval of the monkey, which is about 300 milliseconds, let's see if we can decode the motor parameters that are embedded in this neuron activity that you are recording and reroute to a robotic arm that is going to perform the movement instead of the monkey. So the monkey is going to imagine the movement, but he's not going to use the arm to solve the task, his own arm. He's going to use this robotic arm that can be next to him or can be across the planet, as we did it a few years after the experiment I'm going to show you now. So, of course, this system is also going to provide feedback to the brain so that the brain is aware of what is going on and it can basically react to the, you know, the mechanical uh, attributes and the failures and the errors produced by the mechanical system that is under control by the very brain that is actually observing this behavior unfold. So the first experiment was done in rats. Uh, we published a paper, but people said, oh, these are rats. I mean, who cares? Let's try, you need to try in monkeys. This is always what they say. And when you're doing monkeys, they say, oh, you have to try in humans, you know? In an event, we did all. So we got with the monkey here. You're going to see a monkey that was trained to use first a joystick to move a computer cursor inside of a target that is changing randomly in the screen so that for the monkey to get a drop of orange juice that they love, they had to make that cursor go inside the target and keep it briefly there. So they get a reward uh, and they do a next trial. So monkeys will do 
1,500 trials a day for this. And they will drink 500 mLs of juice, you know, in an afternoon. And they do that every day. They love it, so they're very enthusiastic about that. And so what you see here is that as the monkey is doing this, we are recording at that time 100 neurons simultaneously from the structures I showed you, rerouting here to a wall of PCs at that time. Today is a chip, but at that time it was a wall. And we are running a variety of models uh, that people have proposed in the literature, including our own, to try to extract kinematic parameters that can be rerouted to a robotic arm in another room that is going to learn, and later on, I hope, we hoped, perform the task as the monkey can perform when he's using the joystick. That was the goal. And of course, we had no clue whether this would happen. So this is one of our favorite monkeys, Aurora. She's the first to actually accomplish this. You can see that she loves to play the game. In fact, she loves so much to drink that juice at the end of crossing the target that she tries to cheat in every target trial. Uh, before the target appears, she's trying to cross it, and sometimes she does. <laughs> but she cannot do that because there are 32 random locations, and she'll never get that by random alone. Uh, but every time she crosses this target, she's getting juice. And once she gets juice, a new trial starts, and basically, let's see if I can get this. Yes. Uh, we are recording the brain activity continuously while she's doing that. We are rerouting these signals to computers, and we are getting outputs that try to mimic uh, the movements that she's performing in a robotic arm that is in a different room. Well, this was the real first experiment in, in, in which we tried this. And what you're going to see here, I like to say, is a very dramatic line, and I love it, is the first day that the brain got liberated from the physical limits of the body to act in the world directly by using its electrical output. And I mean it because you can see now that Aurora has stopped moving her arm, but she's playing the game. She's even cheating. We can reproduce the cheating before the trial starts. And it took some time for her to get used to some quadrants of the, of the region. This is more difficult than the lowering uh, quadrant. But in a week, she was performing at the same level of performance that you saw her doing, which is about 98% correct, 99% correct, with the joystick. She was controlling this with her brain activity, 100 cells out of 100 million that exist in, uh, in the motor cortex. So there's a lot of redundancy. That's the first thing I want to show you. So when we start looking at these data sets and we divided this, uh, the contribution of different cortical areas, uh, see, this is neurons. I'm sorry. This is neurons, number of neurons in the x-axis, and this is contribution in R squared to the output. We had 21 different outputs, kinematic and dynamic outputs. This is like hand position in the x-axis. This is gripping force. The colors represent different structures in the cortex, from the frontal to the parietal lobe. And as you can see, all these structures are contributing somewhat to the variance of this control signal that is uh, being exported. But if you look carefully, you see that the colors change. The, the, for parameter to parameter, you see that the distribution of colors change. The motor cortex is here. The primary motor cortex, the somatosensory cortex is here, the posterior primary cortex is here, but you see this distribution changes. So even though the system is relying on a highly distributed uh, network to encode the information, there is a specialization on top 
of that highly distributed signal. So some cells are better from force than for position, but they are contributing to all computations simultaneously. So there is a distributed representation, there is a specialization, and there is multitasking happening all at the same time. The same neurons participating in multiple networks to compute many outputs uh, simultaneously. You can see that if you start removing neurons from this one by one, you get to a point where the system goes down to nothing. And you cannot get any control with very small numbers of neurons. One, two, three, five, ten. You really don't get anything. So that is when we propose that the true functional unit of the central nervous system is a population of neurons, not a single neuron. That was a big deal. We got a lot of trouble for that. But it has been now reproduced in many different systems, in many different applications, not only in brain-machine interfaces. You need an ensemble, like Donald Hebb said in 1949, you need a population to actually compute anything that is behaviorally significant in the mammalian brain. But there was more surprises, many more actually. Wow, okay. So, when we look at the one property, functional property that is very well known in this field, that is directional tuning, how neurons respond in anticipation to movements in different directions. So you get a beautiful bell-shaped curve for each neuron that varies from neuron to neuron. So if you have a 130 neurons randomly sampled in the motor cortex and you align them according to their directional tuning, you get this beautiful diagonal. The z-axis magnitude of firing in number of spikes, electrical spikes. So you have a beautiful diagonal because I have to move my arm in every direction possible. So you have to have neurons that code for every possible spectrum or range of directions in 3D. So that's the reason you get that. But this is when the monkey is using the joystick. What nobody expected to see was that when we actually disconnected the joystick and let the monkey play the game without moving the body, these cells acquire a complete different tuning, a completely different directional tuning. There was, you can see the disorder of this graph. It has some reminiscence of, of this image, but the reason this is different is because instantaneously this brain is assimilating the directions in which the robotic arm can move. So now it's coding for the movements of the robotic arm as if the robotic arm were an extension of the body of this animal. It's like we created a monkey with three arms and the brain had no trouble in assimilating that piece of hardware as if it were an extension of the, what we call the body schema. The, our brains, all our brains, have an image of our bodies inside our heads that is very important for defining our sense of self in a variety of computations about motion. Well, this brain now had a third arm. And it turned out that you didn't even have to have the monkey playing with the joystick for this to happen. We discovered a couple years after this experiment that if you only had the monkey watching trajectories on a screen, hundreds, thousands of trajectories over a couple hours, that this representation of an artificial arm, this is an avatar arm in virtual space, would basically develop over a period of a couple of sessions, a few sessions, a week, 10 to 12 sessions. You basically can see this representation of a virtual or mechanical arm developing into the brain day by day. So much so that if you plot neurons, the same group of neurons, and the activity of the same group of neurons, when the animal is actually moving its own biological arm versus when it's observing a virtual arm moving, 
you can see that the same neurons are firing. The same neurons are actually producing activity. The characteristics of the firing, uh, you know, the details are different. The magnitude is smaller, is more spread out when you're only observing something, but that's a very important form of learning. That's how primates and humans in particular became what we are, because we can observe someone creating a new tool and our neurons can actually assimilate the sequence of movements necessary to create that tool. And that is a very big way of synchronizing multiple brains to collaborate in a social motor task. But that's a completely different talk. I'll, it'll be a different day. For brain-machine interfaces, this was a big revolution because it meant that even if the subject is completely paralyzed, like a person who had a spinal cord injury, for instance, you can train that person to interact and to learn how to operate a brain-machine interface because you can just show the intended movements on a screen, and the brain, being the true creator of everything that it is, is going to actually embed in tissue the representation, the statistics of the movements that you want to produce. So, but how plastic, and that's the word we use to define this learning ability, this self-adapting ability of the brain. How plastic is the brain? How much can we push the brain to acquire new statistics about the world and, and generate new representations of what is out here that is not natural for the brain? One of my postdoc students, uh, uh, Eric Thompson, decided that he wanted to push this limit by actually trying to see if we could create a new sensory modality if we would create a new sensory channel in a mammalian brain. And what he did was to ask the question, if I implant, ish, I'm having a battle here. Okay, good. If I implant on the head of a, mouse, a rat, an adult rat, an infrared sensor or uh, several infrared sensors, and then I take the electrical output of this sensor that is basically detecting the presence of infrared in the environment, and I deliver this in the middle of the area of the brain that is responsible for tactile processing, touch. Can I embed on top of that representation a representation about infrared? Can I make rats not see infrared because I'm not sending this through the eyes? Can I make rats touch otherwise invisible infrared? Because as you know, most mammals don't have, or a vast majority, don't have any way to detect the, the wavelength of infrared through the retina. There are some bat, strange bats in Australia that does that. But for the most part, mammals and primates, of course, don't, are blind. Uh, infrared cannot be detected. But I'm not asking whether we could make these animals see infrared. I wanted to, them to touch infrared, to transform uh, this modality into a tactile, fine tactile. And I'm not talking about temperature. I'm talking about fine touch, okay? So what you're going to see is one of these experiments in which uh, a rat was implanted with a 360-degree panoramic uh, sensor for infrared, and I, I, sh I should say that in a moment after, but I'll say it before. When we did only, uh, when we use only one uh, sensor that could detect 90 degrees uh, in front of the animal. It took about four weeks for this animal to learn this task and cross 90% correct. When we put 360 degrees of infrared vision, it took four days. And I'm going to show you the latest experiment where we put it in a different part of the brain, the visual cortex, not the tactile cortex. It took four hours. 
Okay? That's how plastic it is. And the task here is the following. This is in the dark. The animal has to detect an infrared beam that is randomly coming from one of these four ports. And if it goes and no spoke to that port, it gets uh, sugar water. And they love that, so they'll do anything for it, but they cannot see the beam. They have to feel it as if the beam was touching them uh, from a tactile perspective. And that's exactly what these guys do. They basically, even if they're looking in the opposite direction and a beam comes in the back, they can basically detect it. You may have seen that they were grooming because we delivered this in the middle of the facial area where the whiskers, the big whiskers of the rats are represented in the brain. These are the most important tactile organs for rats. So in the beginning, they groom as if they have been touched in the whiskers, but they stop grooming. In a week, they stop grooming and they basically behave normally. So what happened to the brain of these guys? They have a, a sensory prosthetic device implanted in their cortical, uh, some sensory cortical area. First of all, the cells that used to respond, and I spent 10 years of my life doing that, twigging hairs of rats to measure the sensory responses of individual neurons. You, you have not gone to hell until <laughs> you, know, you learn to do that. John Chapin taught me, and uh, I was in charge of that for five years as a postdoc. So, these are beautiful mechanical responses of individual cortical neurons in the whisker representation area of the primary somosensory cortex. Now, the same cells that respond to touch respond to infrared. And the beauty is, nothing that they can do now by detecting infrared affects their ability to discriminate a tactile stimulus delivered to their whiskers, a mechanical tactile stimulus. It doesn't compromise the original function of these circuits. So you can basically embed on top of it a new sensory circuit or a new sensory modality. Interesting enough, Eric was not happy. He wanted to do something more difficult. And his question now was, okay, instead of implanting the somewhat sensory cortex, let's go to the visual cortex because it's light. Animals learn how to deal with light. But now, has, let's divide the message, the encoding of the message that takes the animal to the reward, half through the visual spectrum that goes through the eye, and half into infrared that goes to the infrared sensor. Let's see if we deliver this message to the visual cortex, whether the animals can integrate both halves and detect where they should go in real time, at the same reaction time that they do normally. We are we're going to see now, what you're going to see now in this uh, little clip, is animals, the animal doing the same task you saw before, but now to find the correct beam, it has to find the port that is producing half of the light into visible spectrum and half into infrared. And I'm going to point out to you. So now we have a port with a visual distractor, no light, IR distractor, and here's the correct one the one where he has to go. So you, you probably saw he took a peek of some of these ports, didn't see the combination of the signals, the visual cortex did not detect both signals, and then he went to the correct one. After about three weeks of training, the reaction time was the same that you saw before for the somosensory cortex, and the same for visible light discrimination. The cortex was just integrating both signals and creating 
something different, a nonlinear combination of visible and infrared spectrum to generate this new sensory modality. So if it's that plastic, can we go even further down the road? Could we apply this new discovery of the dimension of plasticity of the human brain or the mammalian brain and try to attack questions that are even more complex? Like, for instance, when you get a patient that suffers a, a car accident and has a complete lesion of the spinal cord, below the level of this lesion, the patient cannot move, the patient cannot feel the body at all, so much so that this body representation that I mentioned to you starts to shrink to represent only the territories that remain innervated. So if you're quadriplegic, the only thing that is represented after a few years in your brain is your head. So if you're like our patients, mid-thoraxic level, uh, the rest of the body below the lesion disappears from the representation. Your sense of self stops here, literally, okay? But more than that, your visceral functions below the level of the lesion also go uh, bad. So if you have a mid-thoraxial level, your bladder, uh, your intestines, everything below the lesion is going to stop functioning, okay? So it's not only that you cannot move, the, the, the impact on your brain of a spinal cord lesion is tremendous. And you have now the latest estimates, about 25 million people around the world with these lesions. So the question is, when we saw that, uh, John and I published this paper in Scientific America in 2002 because nobody else would publish it. So we, we got into Scientific America, well, it's not too shabby, but <laughs> in any way, our prediction was in one decade, what we have learned so far, and we only had three years of experimentation with brain-machine interfaces at that point, we may be able to create a bypass that actually uses a brain-machine interface to extract the voluntary motor instructions coming from a paraplegic's brain, use a computational bypass to bypass the lesion, and create a new body in the form of an exoskeleton, a robotic exoskeleton, that could actually be uh, controlled by the patient directly so the patient can walk again, but also could provide the necessary feedback to maintain this control loop working and, and feed into the brain a new description of a body to basically enlarge, again, the sense of self to the limits of the body that remain paraplegic or paralyzed uh, due to the lesion of the spinal cord. Well, before I could do that, I wanted to prove that we could induce locomotion and other types of movements that are not necessarily uh, physiological or normally seen nature. For that, we created uh, at Duke a wheelchair that could be controlled directly by a brain-machine interface, at this point a wireless brain-machine interface, about 300 neurons broadcasted wireless. And we asked the question, can a monkey learn to move in the world using brain activity to control a wheelchair that is nothing related to the limbs of a regular monkey? It's not, the kinematics is totally different. And you're talking about electrical motors that have nothing to do with the kind of motor coding that we normally use to move. And what you're going to see is the, the, the proof that that can happen. This is a, a camera on the ceiling first of the lab. Uh, we have, uh, to test this, we had three positions in which the animal is positioned randomly first, and then the animal has to drive this wheelchair to a pod to collect grapes, which is the second thing they like the most after juice. And if they collect the grapes in a given amount of time, they have uh, returned to a new position, and they have to basically improvise a new trajectory 
to get back there. And basically, that's what these guys learned to do. So you're seeing from the ceiling the first self-driven car using a wireless brain machine interface by a monkey. And it's pretty safe. We never had an accident with these guys. <laughs> so the monkey could care less about anything until he gets to the pod and he starts collecting the grapes. And interesting enough, that wheelchair became assimilated by the brain as an extension of the monkey's body. And more than that, we discover something that people thought was impossible, space coding in the motor cortex. You probably have heard because you know, people got a Nobel Prize for describing the characteristics of place coding in the hippocampus of rats or rodents. Well, it was thought that only the hippocampus is involved primarily in the coding of space when you were locomoting freely in a, in, a, in a space, in a room or whatever. But nobody had recorded in a freely moving monkey driving a wheelchair through a brain machine interface. And what we found is these beautiful place cells representing space in the motor, primary motor cortex, suggesting that very likely over evolution, the coding of space has invaded the neocortex from the hippocampus, and not only the hippocampus is more involved, because the space is fundamental for everything. Coding is space is fundamental for any arm movements and anything. So the circuit may have enlarged, and now we have a big fight that we never expected to have because of the description of this. Because if you combine lots and lots of these cells, you can reconstruct the spatial vector, the trajectory of the monkey going into the room. Uh, as he is controlling that wheelchair. So that was enough for the goal we wanted because when we saw that, we thought, okay, this is really possible. That's when we, I proposed to create this international nonprofit consortium that became known as the Walk Again Project. And the idea was, in 2012, to build uh, the first brain control exoskeleton that a paraplegic uh, patient could use to actually walk and receive feedback from this device as it's walking uh, in the environment. For that, uh, I start calling my friends all over the world, and they all answer the phone call to their regret to some degree. And I have to say, they all agreed to come up, work for free, open up everything they had. We created a uh, consortium involving 25 countries, and it so happened that I'm Brazilian, and I was in the right place at the right moment, the presidential palace in Brasilia, a few years ago, when people were debating, what do we do in the opening ceremony of the World Cup? And all these crazy, loony ideas going around and mentioning to the president of Brazil, suddenly I raised my hand and said, well, what about if we have a paraplegic, a Brazilian paraplegic, delivering the opening kickoff of the World Cup using the first exoskeleton control directly by the brain through a brain machine interface? And the president of Brazil looked at me and said, who are you? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I'm the guy who knows the people who can come and do this thing. We, I have no idea if it could be done, but I knew that theoretically <laughs> it could. So she, it was the greatest and perhaps the latest phenomenal grant I ever got in my life because she signed right there. You know, the type of peer review that I enjoy. <laughs> so here we went. 
And in 18 months, because the bureaucracy in Brazil is horrible and FIFA is even worse, no wonder some of them are here in New York for some permanent stay, uh, you know. <laughs> but in December 2013, we finally got all permits, all permissions, everything. So we had to recruit patients, eight patients from a pool of 65,000 paraplegics in the largest uh, database in Brazil, one of the greatest in the world, actually. We had to build an exoskeleton. We had to build a lab inside a soccer stadium because that's where we had to deliver this thing on June 12, three, I never forget this until I'm alive. June 12, 2014, 3.30 p.m. Swiss precision. It had to be done at that moment. So we went there, got eight chronic paraplegics with many, many years after the lesion, 13, 6, 3, as chronic people, people that had never been able to move or do anything after the original lesion. They're all classified as complete paraplegics. We basically built a routine that involved immersion of virtual reality environment first to reinsert into the brain the concept of having legs and the concept of having locomotion programs ready to go using virtual reality, as you're going to see in a moment. And then we put them into our custom-designed brain control exoskeleton to actually learn to walk again. This is our first prototype. We are now in the second prototype, but this is the heroic machine that we build. It's an electrical hydraulic system controlled by brain activity over a non-invasive method called electroencephalography because we discovered that for locomotion we could get enough signals that we needed for that. And here you see one of our patients in the cockpit practicing. And basically, one of the key features developed by my good friend Gordon Scheng at Technical University of Munich that was essential for this, the success of this thing was this. He calls it artificial skin. But these are basically flexible printed circuit boards. They have pressure, temperature, and proximity sensors that we can apply to key locations of the exit, like the plantar surface of the feet or the knees, so that when patients touch ground or move, a wave of feedback is generated and delivered to the arms of the patients, because it's the only place in the body that we can guarantee that they can feel something, through a haptic display. So they can actually feel what is to walk again as they see themselves walking. In addition, we decided that people came to us, how are you going to train this algorithm? How are you going to get a computer power to do this? I said, well, we have the best computer evolution has ever created, the human brain. So let's create a hybrid computer. I call it an organic computer merging with a digital machine. The organic computer is the brain. So what we did is to get the the correct, the optimized parameters of the haptic display for each patient is that they search in the environment, the virtual reality environment, what is the combination of frequency, speed, and amplitude of the haptic display by actually using their own brains as a computing device to get to the solution of the equation that we probably could never solve analytically. We had to have an analog machine to do. People may have heard about analog computers. I'm not even say if I can say that here, if it's allowed. But they do exist. The best one is right here, between your ears. So what you see here is a hybrid analog digital computer working. So it's a patient paralyzed for 14 years who is actually searching perimeter space while controlling that avatar on a virtual soccer field, getting the feedback in the arms, 
and trying to find the best combination of these three parameters to fill it. Funny enough, because they're paraplegic and because we, we play a little trick in them, they didn't report this sensation as coming from their arms. They had a phantom limb illusion and started reporting the illusion of feeling that feedback coming from their own legs. So that made this exo much more realistic than anything because they actually had the feeling that they were walking by themselves, not in a machine. So the scene I'm going to show you happened eight times because we had eight patients. This is the first moment one patient after a decade in a wheelchair walked by himself controlling this exo, using the brain to control the movement, getting the feedback in the arms right here, and watching a big mirror, him upright, wholesome again, walking to reinforce the sense of self, to actually reintroduce the notion that he has a full body. Uh, and here he is. The lights are basically signals for him to start imagining the movements. And every time he touches ground, he's getting on the ipsilateral arm a feedback of the movement or the contact with the ground. And he's watching himself walk. I cannot translate what he said because it's a bad curse word in Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> but in any event, these guys walk hundreds of steps in six months to basically be prepared for walking in a soccer stadium, in an open field with all the magnetic, electromagnetic noise you can imagine exists on planet Earth. It was all there in Sao Paulo on June 12, with all the TVs, stations, satellite, you know, you name it. But Dear FIFA didn't allow us to have cameras of our own to document scientifically the event at the moment of the kick on the field because they own the rights of the TV images and they wouldn't allow anybody to tape it. However, you're in Brazil. <laughs> and there are Brazilian neuroscientists in the team. And cellular phones can be hidden in, in a Brazilian style that no Swiss will ever figure out. So, what you're going to see is five or six minutes before we went to the field. This is in the ramp. There are 65,000 people in the stadium. Uh, the audience at that moment was 1.2 billion people. Juliano Pinto, a T4, complete paraplegic, nine years in a wheelchair, he looked at me and said, you know, this is heavy. I said, well, yeah, good moment to remember that. And he said, I want to do one more. I want to do a kick before we get to the field. Can we do that? And that's the moment where the secret cell phone pop out. And what you're going to see, since we, we started having 10 minutes allowed, and FIFA cut us to 30 seconds at the end of the process. That's part of the reason they are in jail in New York. <laughs> but uh, some of them, not all. Most of them. <laughs> so. What we had when we realized that we couldn't even have a microphone to describe what is going to happen, we did a light show on the EXO. We put LEDs on the EXO to illustrate to the world the concept of a brain-machine interface. 
And what we're going to see is when the light LEDs start pulsating, it's because Giuliano placed the arms on the armrest, which turns on the exo. That's how you turn it on. And when you see green and white, green and red, I'm sorry, green and yellow coming from the helmet down to the feet, is because he's starting the process of imagining the movement that is going to trigger the kick. It's a brain-machine interface, so the idea was light is coming from the head to the feet to produce the movement. And that's exactly what he did. So he made the decision now, he get it ready, and he releases the thought and he kicks the ball. When he did that in the field, we had a surprise for him that he didn't know about. We turned a sensor in the foot on, right here on the toe, because Brazilians toe poke balls a lot. <laughs> and what we wanted is not only for Juliana to kick, but to experience the contact with the ball. And when he actually did kick the ball, the stadium went crazy, we went crazy, he went crazy. We run to him and the only thing he could repeat was not I, I, I score, I move, I kick, was I felt the ball. So we underestimate by a long shot what it is not to be able to walk and not be able to actually feel uh, where we are going, where we are going with this thing that we call walking. For him, the most definitive proof that this thing was happening was the tactile contact with the ball. Well, we thought that that was the greatest highlight of the whole show, and it was not. One month later, everybody came back to the lab after the World Cup was over, and we went to do our routine neurological exam because it's part of our RBI. It's mandatory in Brazil every three months. It doesn't matter if you have a spinal cord injury. You have to do entire neurological exam and document it every aspect of the neurological description. And these guys have been doing neurological exams for years, and they're all the same. Well, not this time. When Julian was, uh, you may remember that I said that he was a T4, but when he was examined that day, he was a T11. He had gained seven segments of the spinal cord in tactile sensitivity. Not fine touch, but crude touch, but he still could tell which part of my belly you're touching, which, where your pin is placing. What is happening here? I never seen that, nobody had ever seen that. I went to medical school and they told me you're never going to see recovery in a spinal cord injury. And I still teach medical students and I still, people still say the same thing. Well, but I learned one thing in medical school, good old University of Sao Paulo. If you see something happening for sensory, you better look for motor because maybe there is something there. And it turned out, first, as we follow up our patients over 28 months, you can see that on average, they recover 10 segments of sensitivity. Giuliano could feel his toes. He recovered 15 segments in the peak of his training. But then we look at motor. And in the beginning, nothing. EMGs were flat. Suddenly, Seven months into after the World Cup, we start seeing this. EMG activity, voluntary EMG activity in muscles below the level of the injury. So what does that mean? How does that reflect in real motion? I'm going to show you the first shock, perhaps the greatest shock of my clinical career. That's when we put one of our patients that had been, you know, basically 14 years paralyzed in a suspender, 
a system that suspends you, lets you close to the floor, but not quite touching the floor, so you test voluntary movements of any sort for lower limbs. Well, we put this patient there expecting to see nothing, and suddenly this happened. She started moving in the air. This is a compound three-joint hip, knee, ankle movement that she, of course, never produced for 14 years after their lesion. We waited, we stayed quiet because this was too shocking to everyone. A year later, we came back. We were doing exams every three months, but this is what happened a year later. The cables you're going to see is because we are now recording every EMG we can record in her legs. This is 22 months of training. It's the same lady. She first moves the right leg as she did before, but now she moves the left leg. She was basically recovering a locomotion program, a voluntary locomotion program. This is not a reflex. It's not, nobody's stimulating anything. She's doing it by herself on her own will. Well, we waited longer, and three of these patients were able to introduce a new technique called, a new technique for them. It's a traditional technique that could not have helped them in the beginning. It's called functional electrical stimulation of muscles. It's a non-invasive way to stimulate electrically muscles of the limbs. We, these guys have undergone all the procedures that I showed to you, but then suddenly they could take advantage of this technique, and the result was that they could now walk autonomously, without an exit, without anything. So this is one of the patients that had a great recovery too. And basically now, with this stimulation of muscles in the leg, he can actually get a degree of autonomy that he never had before. Besides, he now can control this with a brain-machine interface. We have developed a system that now activates the muscles using this electrical stimulator, but directly from the brain activity. So the end clinical result of this is the following. And this slide had never been shown before in the literature of spinal cord injury. We started with seven complete total paraplegics and one guy who had some sensitivity but was complete paraplegic too. This is Asia A in the American classification, Asia B here. By the time we end the, the first phase of the protocol with 28 months, and now I can tell you, even these two guys have already moved here, they are all becoming Asia C, which is partial paraplegia. This transition had never been described, uh, or people thought it was impossible to happen. And you may be asking, well, how can that happen? It can happen because of plasticity and plasticity of a magnitude and what a, a type that people thought that was not really possible. If you do the MRI of these guys, and this we only thought about it after the fact, because an Australian pathologist in the 60s was completely ignored, his work was completely ignored, but he had done autopsies in 1,200 spinal cord injury patients, Asia A patients, uh, who have died of natural causes in Australia. And he saw and, and have figures, beautiful figures, and reported that in 65% of these patients, there's at least between 2 and 20% of the nerves of the spinal cord is still preserved. But they go quiet. 
they stop functioning because of the magnitude of the trauma or the magnitude of the invasion of the tissue or the inflammatory reaction, nobody knows. Well, we look at the uh, MRIs of our patients afterwards, and long and behold, we found that some of these patients still had some nerves left. And now we have the suspicion by further MRI studies, I don't have the data with me here because I just came back from Brazil where I look at this data, that as you become paraplegic, these nerves lose volume. They reduce in size and volume in activity. But it looks like that our training made some of this volume to be recovered. So some of these fibers may be reactivated and may explain why you're getting this effect. So I have still four minutes and I wanted to show you a little bit of the future. Uh, four minutes for a Brazilian is nothing, so I can, <laughs> I, I can handle that easily. So far, everything I told you was about one brain controlling one device. And who said that has to be it? We are social animals. We interact in social groups to produce social motor tasks or to produce social products that we deliver. We may call this culture. We may call this all sorts of things. So I thought, why in heavens I have to limit myself to one brain? Could we have a shared brain machine interface that basically would involve the collaboration, the mental collaboration of more of one brain, two or more brains, combining electrical activity to actually produce motor outputs or something else. It doesn't need to be motor. I call this a brain net, and, and it was not in Philadelphia. I was not in Philadelphia this time, <laughs> okay? And let me show you how it works. Suppose you have a diet, a monkey diet, a pair, and you want to move uh, an avatar arm in, let's say, two dimensions, X and Y. But you only get the juice, the, the pair, if the arm gets to the target that is, you know, precisely. Let's give monkey one the job of imagining XX. And let's give monkey two the job of predicting YX. And the only way they can win juice at the same time is if they synchronize their brains to get the arm in X and Y to go to the target that needs to be acquired. And it turns out, then in less than a week, that's what they do. And the synchronization of these brains that never know about each other, they don't know that they exist, actually, is in the order of one to 10 milliseconds. It's a very precise synchronization that happens throughout the motor cortex, okay? And so they're playing here. They're drinking juice just by collaborating in a brain net. Now, you, you you think that this is complicated enough? Let's put it three monkeys. And let's make it a task in which the monkey has to imagine, each monkey has to imagine two axes simultaneously. X and Y, X and, uh, I'm sorry, X and Y, Y and Z, and X and Z. Because the movement now is a 3D movement. So you need at least two monkeys to synchronize perfectly to play what I call the brain net dance game. The brain net dance game is done by each color ball is the output of one of these brains that I just mentioned. The black is the sum, the linear sum of these three brains, and the black ball has to be inside of the sphere for you to drink oranges, okay? And I just want to show you because I love this complexity. 
The balls are collaborating so the black sphere gets in there, they drink juice. Even when the monkey is satiated, like the red is going to drink juice, when the black ball goes there, go there, he thinks it's too much, he's going to take a nap. They do that. When he takes the nap, the other two guys take it over and they keep playing the game. So the system is self-adapting continuously, it's computing continuously uh, the solution to get the arm in there to make it. Well, you say, what the hell a neuroscientist is doing with a brain net in Durham, North Carolina for? What is that for? Well, it's because it's everywhere. We are brain nets. We just use different synchronizing signals. So let me show you an example. These are two monkeys. This is the alpha monkey here driving with a brain machine interface, the wheelchair that you saw. This is a delta monkey observing the boss. And if the boss drives and collects grapes, this guy gets juice for free. <laughs> but this is the alpha monkey. If an alpha monkey gets close to your meter or so, uh, things can get very nasty, you know? So look what happened. The social interaction, it may sound familiar to you. You may have seen this before. The guy is driving, looking at us, doesn't care about us at all. He's looking at his, you know, underling. This guy is getting very nervous. But he says, oh, I don't care about beating you up today. I'm going to get grapes. When he gets grapes, you see, he's looking, looking, waiting. He knows what is happening. They're cooing to each other because they like the situation. He got grapes. This guy got juice. Well, we are recording these two brains simultaneously throughout this driving in the park. And look what you see. This is the observer's brain. This is the driver's brain. This is the brain synchronizing at a 10 millisecond resolution to form a social group, a brain net. These are the peaks of synchronization. And what, if you zoom into these peaks, what do they tell you about? They tell you where the wheelchair is in space. Even though the monkey is just observing, the brain net is calculating every moment where the, brain, the wheelchair is. It tells you the velocity of the wheelchair, but more important than all, it tells you the alpha monkey is getting close. When the synchronization goes to the peak, it's because the alpha monkey is less than a meter close to the other monkey. So we are measuring social ranking and social interaction by the synchronization of multiple brains. Sounds crazy. Let me finish with something even crazier. This is a paraplegic patient. This is a physical therapist. This guy takes a long time to learn the virtual reality game that I showed to you. Well, what about if this guy would lend 90% of his EEG to 10% of the guys and merge, and they play the game together with that weight function in the beginning? That's exactly what we are doing now. We are actually trying to speed it up the training of our paraplegic patients by having them participate in a brain net in which the beginning of the training is shared with a mind that has a full representation of legs and body, which makes the game much easier to play. So imagine for a second a physical therapist in Sao Paulo, Brazil, lending her or his brain activity 
to a few thousand paraplegics around the world hope to be trained at that very moment. So that's what plasticity may take us, I hope, one of these days. Thank you. Come on over here. Thank you. Really fantastic job. It, it gets better <laughs> the more you add. Uh, so I, I will start with the first question because it's what we talked about last night at, at dinner, which is uh, the whole idea of how uh, Homo sapiens became better than Neanderthals, and and what because you have a, a theory about you know Neanderthals have bigger brains, bigger bodies, yes. they should have won. So what's what happened? Well. Of course, we don't have a demonstration for it, but I... I <laughs> you don't have a, a Neanderthal? No, no, but there is a possibility now. A possibility just open to test this idea. Because now you can do reconstructions of endocasts. You can actually simulate how the brain in the endocast looks like. And because we now have measured so many... Um, uh, we have obtained so many measurements about white matter and gray matter in Homo sapiens, you can actually try to extrapolate to see the volume of uh, some pathways, the volume of some for, for a different yes. sub subspecies. But my theory is that the reason we succeeded is because the configuration of the white matter that connects the 86 billion neurons that we have, which is much less than the near the Tau's head, is optimal for synchronizing. It actually allows individuals to synchronize easier, so you form social groups in an easier way, and you maintain them um, very tight together uh, in comparison to other species. And very likely, or at least in my in this theory, the prediction would be that the Neanderthals were very good. They had, I mean, probably 200 billion neurons, but they didn't have the white matter connectivity that was optimized for forming so efficient social groups. So when they, when they faced uh, Homo sapiens groups, they lost. And, and this comes from this book I love by Yuval Harari, who basically points out that humans went to Homo sapiens, uh, to Neanderthal land, because we coexisted for a few 10,000 years, and the first time we lose, and we're, we're shown as sort of, there are, there are corpses or, or, or fossils of humans having lost uh, uh, and then 10,000 years later, we go back and we wipe out uh, Neanderthals within a matter of 1,000 years. And, and the assumption by Harari was because of us, we socially were able to cooperate to outwit the bigger, stronger, nominally smarter uh, species. And so I think it's really fascinating that sort of you have the same yeah. thesis. So, tell, so just say one more thing about that, that structure thing, because we talked a lot about that. The white matter being more important than... Than the, uh, well, uh, than the gray matter in some way. When you look at the growth, the extraordinary growth of the human brain compared to other uh, uh, primates, chimpanzees, monkeys, and even other ancestors of ours, what you see is a hyperscaling of uh, white matter in comparison to gray Which matter. Which for everyone is the connectivity tissue. Yes, the connectivity tissue, the thing that connects the neurons. And that particularly in the frontal and parietal lobes. That is exactly what you need to create abstract ideas, uh, make tools, interact socially, create a theory of mind. So all these, these areas became connected in a different way. And they became, in, in, according to what I think, they became connected in an optimal way to, in addition to produce technology, 
teach how to produce technology and teach how to make hunting packs or social groups that can uh, become uh, tightly associated under a variety of adverse conditions. So last of mine, uh, in that world, uh, an AI-based machine just based on relatively well-defined sets of hidden layers in a neural net has no chance of replicating a human. No, uh, the brain is a non-computable device, at least from a digital point of view. So good old Kurt Godel had it right. Intuition and you know high-level cognitive uh, attributes of the human brain are beyond the scope of a Turing machine. And I I hate to say that, but... uh, We're here for a couple more decades. Yeah, we are. We have a lot to do. (laughs) So, okay, enough from me. Uh, Yeah, Al, I see there. Uh, First, thank you for a very intriguing and inspiring talk. Thank you. Your last comment brings out the computer scientist in me. Oh. And it's not just you bringing it out. He is a computer scientist. (laughs) But but you are not allowed a gun. (laughs) So uh, I've asked this question for many decades of my computer science colleagues. We know the Turing machine is a universal model of computation for sequential computation. But let's take reactive distributed systems like the human brain perhaps, the internet. Is there a universal model of computation for reactive distributed systems that maintain an ongoing interaction with their environment? It's a wonderful question because it's exactly what I think happens. The the uniqueness of the brain is that the brain, since we are born, and actually before, a little before, is building an internal representation of the external world. And it's continuously reshaping and updating. That's why the infrared rat works. But it's building it in a way that is not like a a synthetic uh, representation, like you would expect from a digital machine you're building a a representation that is much more analog because what the brain does is to dissipate energy to embed information into tissue. Think about a protein folding. You know, you get a protein full of amino acids, you drop in whatever medium with the right pH, that thing, whoom, folds in the right quaternary structure. That's the way I see the brain. We need to eliminate, to dissipate energy, to embed information into neuronal tissue so that we can have like the entropy of the brain. You, you have that thing that summed with what we can describe in terms of channel information will describe the brain. But that is beyond the digital, typical digital algorithmic description. And that's the reason we are what we are. Because we create these models and we embed and keep updating these models in a different type of information. And in fact, before I came here, uh, I just finished a book. The coincidence of my life was a month ago, two months ago when I got your email to come here, I was finishing my book, which has a complete chapter devoted to Shannon and devoted to the Macy Conference and to his clear mind definition of what his definition of information was for which we have probably misplaced. And he would not be happy because he was a very precise man. And he says that in one of the Macy conferences. And I follow exactly what he's saying, you see? But there's something else. There's a different description of information when you're dealing with things that are embedded in tissue, uh, like in neuronal tissue. And I think he would like it that. 
And, and you think that what we discussed last night was it's an energy minimization of a chemical system problem yes. or something like that. Yes. So those of you who, who are expert in chemical systems are clearly... Well, the step, model we're using ahead. is... I'm, the, I'm not saying I have any expertise in... Well, I was very much inspired by Prigogine and yeah. uh, dissipative uh, theory, uh, you know, and applied that to, with uh, some of my friends, they're mathematicians, to the central nervous system. It's fascinating. Uh, there's an arm reaching over. Ah, oh, Martin. So merging brains into, merging multiple brains into one is pretty amazing stuff. Perhaps someday we'll be able to actually brain dump into someone. No. But I've seen the Borg, and it's not pretty. <laughs> no. Oh, you've seen one? I've, no, I've, I'm, I've watched Star Trek. I've seen the Borg. It's not oh, pretty. Oh, no, no, I've seen it, too, in Star Trek, yeah. but that was different. So be careful. And my question is, uh, I was a little unclear. When you give feedback to the person, you were talking about giving feedback to the arms. Have you tried giving feedback into the brain? Not in these experiments. In, uh, we did in animals. We did in monkeys. We deliver electrical signals from a virtual hand. So imagine the monkey. I had the movie here. It's a pity I didn't have time to show. But the monkey is at the same time controlling a virtual hand to scan surfaces with brain activity. And as the virtual finger is touching the grating, we are sending electrical signals proportional to the grating directly into the somosensory cortex. Two weeks, they are doing at the same level that they do with their own fingertips. But in humans, we didn't do Keep that. Keep going. Yeah, pass, pass along there. Hi. Um, if we uh, attach these monkeys instead of um, wheelchairs to drones, can we make them fly? Well, people have done already. Okay. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I flew the drone today by myself, but not with a brain-machine interface. But that was done in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, University of Chicago. I keep going along, I guess. Same row. Going the wrong way. Mike, there you go. Thank you. Very interesting. You've shown some fairly compelling pictures of neuronal pictures of motion and things like that. Do you think that you might possibly explore some more abstract concepts, such as neuronal pictures of aggression or altruism? And if you could, how would you actually do that? How would you know that that's what you were seeing? Yeah, that's a very good question, too, that gets directly to the previous question of where is the boundary of what we can extract, think about channel information, digital systems and algorithms, and where we cannot cross? Because this is the, the other type of information. I call it Godelian information in honor of uh, Kurt Godot. Uh, so there is a boundary. I think there is a clear boundary. We can play tricks, we can improve, we have done things a little more than just motion. But the higher you go in terms of cognitive functions, the more difficult it is to extract that from uh, neuronal spiking data. Uh, there are ways to circumvent that, but that's what I think you get to that boundary that we may not be able to cross because you are talking about something that is not digital. Purely a brain. Go ahead, right here. Connecting to this question with this boundary, what about quantum information? Is this picture still holding, or can you change it if you go quantum? Well, I may be mistaken because I'm, I'm jumping completely out of my field, but I, if I'm not mistaken, most quantum computers are still Turing machines to some degree, right? So if, the, if it's a Turing machine, forget about it. It's not going to cross it. Yeah, that was we needed something called a hypercomputer. 
But I'm going to ask a, a question before we go to the back there. So uh, actually, the, the, uh, the ability for humans to connect over digital distances. Over digital distances? Yeah, so, so your idea of remote controlling oh. a thing. But how, if, back to the future communications, if, if we're becoming less connected by text and emoji, yes. but we have this in, incredibly powerful digital network, do you, are you optimistic that we will find a way to encode one person's experience send it to another person and, and make it as deeply meaningful as being physically uh, in the same space? Yeah, that's a very good question because uh, I was referring at that moment to motor programs, mm -hmm. particularly motor programs because I know that that can be done by the experience that we had in that. As you get to more uh, intimate, you know, high-level cognitive uh, functions, I, I have doubts. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far we can go. It's a... It's a Empirical question. But if you added tactile, would that help? Yeah, the is tactile, sort of certainly. A, but yeah. I believe that as long as we're using a digital system to do that decoding, you're not going to be able to dump anyone's mind in someone else's mind because it's impossible to extract their mind in the first place. Okay? That's the problem. I have done a brain-to-brain -brain interface between rats, and I was able to uh, exchange bits of tactile and motor information between the brains, but I, I couldn't go forward beyond that level. So there's reason... So, so you're going to bet that we actually go back towards a world where we actually have to be physically... No, closer. I think we'll have to use a different type of computing. Ah. So I think we're, we're going about. to have to use a digital analog computer hybrid so to be able to do better things. Miguel challenged us that since we did the transistor thing, we did digital computing, it's about time we did digital analog computing. This is the place. <laughs> that's a, that's as long the, as that's I can the new take, project. As long as I can take a picture of Penzias there, that's fine. Sure. <laughs> Any other? There's one right at the back. A couple there. I saw someone here. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Sorry. I have, uh, I have polio uh, from the polio vaccine. So my daughter told me, go to the lecture and come home walking. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so can you do that first? So just... Do we have time until dinner? This is good. No, because some lectures, sometimes they bring somebody who's disabled, bring them, and he, they heal them. And no, no, no. I think that's a revival, that's a revival meeting. Yeah. I, I'm Brazilian. I'm Brazilian, not Argentinian. Brazilian. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. But uh, this is the question. Uh, you know Michael uh, Magic Johnson? He's a good sure. football, uh, football, uh, basketball player. Yeah. So he can train people by hooking his head to him while... Oh, that I didn't know. You don't know? Never heard about that. No, no you're, like, you're conjecturing that it could be true. In the future. Oh, oh, oh in the future, oh, yeah. I, I thought he was yeah. saying that yeah. he, okay. No, I got it wrong. I'm sorry. Yes. So you, you, you're thinking whether I could transmit, or a brain-machine interface could transmit the skills of a basketball player to another one. Yeah, an expert, yeah. An expert in general. Yeah, well, uh, no. But I think there is a different thing that can be done by combining uh, visual tactile feedback and a brain-machine interface to improve the motor skills of a high-performance athlete. That's different. Uh. I don't think you will be able to transmit... Uh, is it because they're not capable of moving even in the same space? There's something yes, about and there are other attributes of this being a high-performance athlete that is not just motor control. Mm. There is all sorts of things involved in the psychology mm. of being a high-performance athlete. And we know that. But even no, the, mecha the mechanics of shooting, you couldn't teach the mechanics of shooting? Well, you could, uh, you could do a brain net to train it yeah. using the uh, kinematics that comes from that brain. The, 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 the motor coding of kinematics, you could try to do something like that. 
but not not the entire gestalt that's, that's fair. of yeah. being magical. Of being also. a star. You couldn't yeah. be messy, but maybe you could at least shoot yeah. like him once. Yeah. <laughs> you'll never, use, you'll never let me tell you that. You'll never be Pelé. <laughs> You never be Maradona. You may be Messi, but not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last couple, and then we'll wrap up. Right at the back. Hi. Um, by connecting multiple brains, can we come up with collective consciousness and create something which a single uh, human being cannot think or like uh, work together, make it? You know, I was uh, this this winter. I was reading Kurt Vonnegut. Um, mm -hmm. And he did that in the fifties. And the funny part—I'm not taking—I'm not joking. Uh, the guy was extremely smart. It's, uh, it's incredible how well he was able in fifty-five to talk about implants in the brain that would eventually create. And you know what he says in the middle of the science science fiction book? We did everything but consciousness. Oh. So. I'm just quoting him to say that, first, we don't know what it is. It's a clear emergent property of the brain. Certainly, there's no doubt. I think it's related to uh, the electromagnetic fields of the brain generating an emergent property. However, when you do what you saw here in the brain net, remember, you are isolating a subcomponent of the brain. You're just getting the electrical spikes of uh, a population of neurons, and you're merging them with a digital system. No, with okay. plasticity, uh, like uh, without brain, can we just expand the arena so that we can connect multiple, uh, visualize something else rather than like what a single individual? You no, know, you may be able to visualize something else if you're getting information from a different brain. Certainly, you may be able to do that, but to get to the point of merging your consciousness or merging your intimate experiences to create a, let's say, a super consciousness, I don't think so. Okay. Thank you. But, but it's just my opinion, you know. And you're a Bell Lab, so. That's no. <laughs> <laughs> a great way to end. Uh, thanks, for, thanks very much. Oh, there's, wait, there's one more. Thank you. You have to do one oh. more. One more? Yes, this is the very last. Oh, no problem. No? Oh, hello. Um, Hi. So, what intrigues me is the incredible plasticity of the human brain and brains in general. And I was wondering if you could actually um, connect parts of the brain that aren't as in interconnected to move function to other areas. For example, in, say, Alzheimer's disease, um, certain structures are preferentially um, attacked or they yes. degenerate. So can you move functioning to other places? Well, there, well? there are people trying to do that. There are people to, trying to do artificial bypasses between different areas of the brain to see if you can reroute, like create an artificial rerouting of certain signals. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, there is an active area of research right now, but I don't think that is going to be the solution for that kind of disease. I think you have to get to the disease before the degeneration uh, explodes non-linearly. Mm -hmm. uh, you the degeneration in Alzheimer's uh, can be slow for a while, and then it takes off. Mm -hmm. The issue is if you can get it right here mm -hmm. in this low phase and prolong the period, you may, you may have a beginning of something efficient at that point. And maybe you should mention the, the chip you've implanted in spines that now that actually are synchronizing Oh, well, we, are, we, have a, we have been working with Parkinson's disease using a completely different concept because uh, part of the, the, what I have developed over the last 30 years is a theory of what is the common pathway of all, most of neurological disorders and even psychiatric disorders, which actually 
I don't make this distinction myself. They're diseases of the brain. They're disturbances of the brain. While it seems a large number of these diseases converge to a state of hypersynchrony of circuits. Particular circuits of the brain get into a hypersynchrony state that's pathological. So is that like having a fibrillation of the heart? And what people, does, what people do is to defibrillate the heart. Well, I thought about the same thing. And we tested these ideas in Parkinson's disease and worked. We were able to use a chip in the spinal cord and send a defibrillation, defibrillation signal to the brain and disrupt the local epileptic seizure that was happening in Parkinson's disease that we know about. And the patients were able to now walk and not have symptoms. So I think this applies to many diseases, including potentially Alzheimer's disease. Because before you go to that avalanche of destruction, you have a phase in which seizures are very highly associated with the disease. I think it's because the, the system is, the seizures are actually underlying this ramp up of destruction. So basically yeah. things like epilepsy, Parkinson's, that seem to have this hyperscale, if you can catch them early on and resynchronize it, it stops. Yes, so if you could catch the seizure at the beginning and desynchronize that, you may alleviate the, the, the basic reason why cells die so quickly. And uh, that's what we are about to embark on. Now that we know that it works in Parkinson, trying different other uh, neurological disorders. That's it. Off you go. Thank you. Oh, I have one more thing. Thank you. Thank you. you get oh, your wow. Shannon trophy. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. And, we, and we will uh, we'll mail it to you. Thank it's you. Heavy. It's going to be Thank you. Great. Got Great it. job. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It actually helps new people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation. It was recorded and mixed at Audiation Studios at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.